You're listening to Smart Businesses Do This, and today I'm joined by none other than Ryan Moran. He's a serial entrepreneur, investor, author, and an expert at building online brands and selling them for profit. If you want to learn how to build a six- and seven-figure online business with your current audience, then this episode is a must. I'm your host, Adam Lyons. Let's get started. You are listening to Smart Businesses Do This the podcast show for freelancers, side hustlers, and upcoming small business owners who want to transform their current business or business idea into a company that is built to succeed, simple to run, and gives you the freedom to live your life on your own terms. I'm your host, Adam Lyons. Let's get started. This is Brandon, Adam's engineer. We recorded this show and had some technical difficulty with Adam's side, but Adam enjoyed the content so much and wanted to give it out to you guys that we're going to release the show with the audio that we have and just ask that you be a little bit forgiving with it. Today, I am joined by none other than Ryan Morin, who is not only somebody who I consider actually a pretty good friend, but he's an expert when it comes to building brands and then selling them. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. You know, I'm usually the guy on the show with the cool radio voice, and then I'm on with Adam, and now I feel like second card. This is this is <laughs> kind of embarrassing, to be honest with you, Adam. See, I think you've got that cool, sultry, like late night voice. That's what I think you've got going for you. Well, oh. yeah, but in America, we psychologically think that everyone who has an accent is smarter and better looking than us, and so I don't like being in second place. <laughs> I love you so much. Although, also when it comes to America, you guys also put the English guys as the bad guys, so. And the good guys and the romantic ones. And you're just everything to us. We just put you on a pedestal in all situations. <laughs> well, I can tell you that I am 100% jealous of your brain. Ryan, why don't you just share with anyone listening to this right now, what exactly is like your greatest achievement? Because I remember, like, if we go back, what is it, like 10 years, you were not in the same situation that you are now financially, correct? That's true. Although, are there many people who are in the same financial situation in 10 years? Every decade, I don't know. So in terms of wealth creation, I've made 80% of my money building and selling internet brands. And internet brands mean they sell stuff. A mutual friend of of ours, Perry Belcher, 10 years ago actually said, you know, if I were you and I was your age, I would focus on selling stuff, not hopes and dreams, not advertising. I would sell physical stuff. And I took his advice and that's where I've made 80% of my wealth. In terms of non-wealth things, I would say that the biggest accomplishment that I have as a person is I left my faith. And that was probably the hardest time of my personal life of really getting comfortable going against the grain of everything that I believe to be true and everything that made up my sense of purpose and my calling and what I thought my meaning was as a human being. And so when people ask what my greatest accomplishment is, I always kind of have to differentiate that I think the biggest challenge I overcame was leaving the world that I believe to be true. But financially, my biggest win has been through building and selling companies. My biggest company was had run rates between 11 and $12 million, and then uh, selling that to a private equity group. And, and I help other clients have similar results. So from a financial and business perspective, that's my biggest accomplishment. I love that. Now, in the entrepreneurial world, we meet a lot of people who, like you said, I love the way you worded that, sell hopes and dreams, right? People are like, I'm going to help you get rich quick with this seven-part system. Or you too can learn how to think like I do so you can teach other people to think like <laughs> right? But you are different. You sell actual physical things. So what's like an example of maybe some of the products that you've sold? Where do the new ideas come from? 
Yeah. So my first couple of businesses I had, I built and sold a, a yoga startup. I've had a supplement brand. I'm probably best known for a sports nutrition company I had called Sheer Strength Labs. I'm an investor in Onnit. I'm an investor in Outstanding Foods. I'm an investor in a food company called Flex. I'm an investor in a beauty brand called Fox Brim. So I have a kind of a, a wide range across the board of the different types of businesses that I'm in. The, the singular asset that I focus on is audience. And what that means to me is if you can't build a business around a group of people, then you usually end up having a really hard time. The hack, if you will, the lever that you can pull is if you have attention that you can send to really any product or event or podcast, then you have the upper hands uh, compared to everyone else. Whereas most people are going out and they develop a product. They're trying to figure out how to hawk or sell or manipulate people into buying the product. When you've got the audience, to me, that's the real asset. I was sitting down with a very prominent podcaster last week who gets about a million downloads a day and looking at the numbers of what advertisers spend with him. And it's millions of dollars. And I ask why. And they say, we're their biggest salespeople. We have the audience. They have the brands. We bring them together and we create magic. Audience, you have the asset. So where I really have specialized is going out and building brands around the audience because I found that that helps you get to the seven-figure level much faster, which gives you the runway to be able to create the systems to take you to eight figures and beyond. I love when you mention systems. One of the things I, you know, I was talking to you just before we went live here is you really have got it down to a system. I can't tell you how often I see you post something like, if you have a brand or a business or an audience that is of this specific criteria, then I know that I can take you to this other level. So if you wouldn't mind just for a second, just talk about what that qualification is. What would a brand or business have to do in order for you to consider working with them? And then what could you give them? Like I can give you an example because we've got a brand that we've been building up on YouTube, which is a gaming brand. And we're sitting at about 25,000 subscribers on YouTube. Some of our videos have had a quarter of a million views. Um, the channel itself has had millions of views. Like, would that qualify or would that be considered too small or is that bigger? And then and then what kind of thing could we expect? For us, this is something that we do mostly as a passion project and we've not really rolled out any kind of branding. So for somebody who's maybe listening to this and they're like, I got an audience of 10,000 people or I've got an audience of 100,000, what would they need? Yeah, so... I have often positioned it as if you have an audience of at least 100,000 people, I know that I can build a seven-figure business out of that very quickly. But my minimum is always 10,000. The real question here is, what's an audience? How do you determine whether or not that's an audience? And the way that I validate it is, can you, if you say something, what is the minimum number of people who will pay attention? You know, I have a YouTube channel with 80,000 subscribers, but if I put a piece of content on there, if it gets 10,000 views, it's a really good video. Whereas there are people who have 25,000 YouTube videos like you have in the gaming space, and you could get a quarter million views. The metric that we track is not necessarily subscribers or even email opt-ins. It's how many people are paying attention. And that comes down to how many people open the darn email, how many people watch the darn video. How many people come back to the site? Not just find it in Google, but come back to it. And that's a much more interesting metric to track. When you say something, who pays attention and do they take the action that you are intending for them to do? Because what we ultimately want is for people to listen to 
our recommendations. We want them to buy the product we recommend. We want them to go to the websites that we send them to. We want them to buy the affiliate product that we're promoting. And you don't do that just by getting attention for a short period of time. We have to get them paying attention over a longer period of time in order to know that we can predictably get them to take that action. It totally makes sense. Actually, what I love about this is uh, I was reading a great article about Netflix the other day. And uh, I'm fascinated by Netflix. I think the way that they do things is very similar to what a lot of online marketers do. But I don't know if people realize it. Do you know much about Netflix in the workings, how they design their TV shows and things? I don't. You're going to find this fascinating. So when they were creating their original TV series, the way that they did it was they actually used um, the illegal torrent sites to see which shows were the most torrented mm. and which actors featured in the movies and shows that were most torrented. And then they built a show around that. So they found that most people were downloading illegally. Uh, this is when they invented House of Cards, political dramas and political movies. And mm. Kevin Spacey was turning up more often than not. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and so that's how they created their show. And uh, I find it fascinating because I learned recently, uh, I've got some friends in the film industry in LA and there was a show called Norsemen that came out, which I haven't watched, but I'm now totally going to watch it after reading this article from a buddy of mine. And what they did is Norsemen knew that you can get a show on Netflix pretty easily, but you can't guarantee that it will get watched. And the way to guarantee that your show is watched on Netflix is if they put you in the recommended you know, right. watch, but it's a highly coveted space. And so what these guys did was they ran a Facebook ad campaign to 20 20 second videos showing highlight saying now featured on Netflix. And they targeted people that had liked similar movies in the same genre. What this did was they spent $18,000 on Facebook ads in a two month period. And this translated to so many views on Netflix that Netflix reached out to them and asked if they'd be willing to come internally huh. to LA and talk about ways they could to other series and et cetera, et cetera. So they essentially tested preview ads to see which ones would perform the best, knowing that whichever one won the best as in, in a Facebook ad would be the preview they should run on Netflix in order to game into the recommended section. Is that right? That's exactly it. And they were pushing viewers from that testing to Netflix anyway, the internal Netflix algorithm, because Netflix is always looking at which things people watch the most which prompted them to make it the suggested views. In fact, um, our gaming channel, we're doing the same thing right now on Amazon. We have an Amazon TV show called Battle Report where we play. It's essentially one of our YouTube videos, exactly the same, but reformatted for Amazon. And we filmed it exclusively so there would be exclusive content. But when we first pitched Amazon, they were like, well, we don't know if you're going to get the right kind of view count to be worthy of giving you your whole show like on Amazon Prime. But they agreed to put one episode up as a test. And you know, we were like, hey, our audience is going to come. And then all we did was run some ads, made some videos, put them up on our Facebook and YouTube. And uh, we started racking up, you think about a million views on Amazon Prime to the point that Amazon said to us, not only could we upload the entire TV series, but they said, hey, we'd like to get in talks with you about season two and what you guys could do to make it better. That is the hack right there. I mean, the fact that when you can get the attention of groups of people on demand, then the world comes to you we could spend the entire time talking about Donald Trump. We could spend the, you know, we could do an entire podcast talking about just the 2016 election. The real magic to that election was he had an audience, he had a reputation and a brand, and then he leveraged that to continue getting attention in the media, which is the name of the game if you want the world to come to you. If you're pitching a TV show or you're pitching something on Amazon, 
and you have the audience and you can use that as the leverage point to get the rest of the world talking about you, that's how you win. Or at least how you have a shot for your product to stand on its own or lose on its own. But most people are coming at it with a kind of a a product first mentality. And I don't think we get what we want in the world until we know how to sway the audience to come our way. I love that you said that. Actually, we've mentioned this before, but I've got to talk about it again. When you say the Donald Trump thing, I often ask people, especially people that you know, are, are anti-Trump, um, uh-huh. and I, I'm absolutely fine with your political views, whatever they may be. And I, I never really share mine, but I'll always say to them, but I'll be impressed if you can remember Clinton's campaign in the 2000s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And people can't, they can't remember her phrase. They can't remember the campaign. And I say to them, I was like, that's why she lost. It wasn't, believe it or not, it wasn't anything specifically that Trump did, except that he stuck to his brand, stuck to his campaign, and right. he ran the audience. Whereas she, in m- many people loved her. I would argue there were people that loved her more than the ardent fans loved Trump, but her campaign wasn't in place. She didn't get her branding right, and she wasn't running an audience. And I agree with everything you just said, yeah. Yeah, so I think we can officially say that the internet and internet audiences have now not only built companies, but we've swayed elections too. This is just the direction of the world. And so if you're not good at communicating to a group of people or to one specific person, I don't know that it's possible for you to end up getting what you want. All right. So now, so let's just say somebody's got their audience of 10,000 and it's, mm-hmm. it's, they've got their 10,000 subscribers or what have you, or followers, wherever they are. Mm-hmm. And every time they make a piece of content, they get at least 10,000, maybe 25,000 responses. How do you go about helping them? How can they make money? Because I know a lot of people that have big audiences that just don't make any money whatsoever. And yeah. they'll like phone me up and they'll be like, man, I just had another video break a million, but I'm struggling to pay. What do I do now? Yeah. yeah, exactly. What do you do? Yeah. So my background has always been in physical product brands or just internet brands. And that means stuff, obviously. So when it comes down to it, I think a lot of we'll just call them influencers struggle because they have no idea what to sell. And so they end up selling t-shirts and mugs and the random knickknacks and they wonder why they can't get ahead. And that's because the question of what to sell is the wrong question. The right question is who is it that I'm targeting or who is it that I'm serving or who is it that I'm speaking to? That's the starting point. If you've got 10,000 similar minded people within your locus of control, then you have a good idea of who that person is and what their behaviors are. And the next question that we ask is, what are the three to five products that they already buy without us having to sway them in any specific direction? So if you're speaking to gamers and you were not selling games per se, we just say, okay, what is in common with other gamers and how do we serve them? And if we're talking about video gamers, then we're talking about chairs and headsets and we're, we're talking about magazines and subscriptions and we're talking about online subscriptions and, we're, and we can make a list a mile long about the things that that group of people already buy. Since I'm in the physical product world, I usually default to that. I like food brands and supplement brands and CPG brands and snack brands and drink brands. I like that kind of stuff. And so I would usually default to that type of thinking. Where in my skill set in the food and beverage and snack and that world could we work in to that specific audience? And that would be my specialty. And other people are going to look at the information products world and say, okay, to this specific person, what are they going to end up buying? 
And so I think one of the things that really flips it in the mind of the entrepreneur is when they stop thinking about product first and they start going after people. Because it's really easy to sell to people when you know what they want. And we just look at their behavior to know what they want. Whereas most people are trying to develop a product and then hope that it fits in or that they can craft, craft a sales message to the specific person and they hope it fits in. And that to me is the backwards order of operations. I love the way you're thinking about it. Yeah, it's big. We're huge on surveys in our companies. We do a lot of surveying to find out what people buy and what they want. But I think there's something true about what you said. When someone loves something, they'll buy the same thing over and over again, just different versions of it. And mm-hmm. I've seen that time and time again with our own research. Just, yeah, yeah, they're already buying it and they want every potential version of it that they can get. I think this is especially true in, in food brands. It's easy for us to look at our own behavior. And for me, it's like, I eat protein bars. <laughs> if you look at, if there's a new protein bar, I want to try it. I don't know why. I'm just kind of interested in that sector. For some people, it's drinks, energy drinks. People will try different types of energy drinks. There is definitely a propensity for us to buy multiple variations of the same thing when we love something. Just because it's new, you get that dopamine kick uh, because you want to be first to market among that group of 10,000 people. And you sit in that position as the leader of those 10,000 people of being able to lead the next action of that group of people. And so if you're an entrepreneur, and you are trying to make money, then your job is to provide that for that group of people. You know, I have a friend who, a student actually, who sells knives for, is it Fortnite gamers? Forgive me, I'm not a gamer, Adam. Yeah, but, Fortnite, uh, Fortnite is 100% yeah. a thing. Right, so is knives a thing in that game? Uh, uh, forgive yeah, we- me. Weapons are in general, so... Okay, all right, cool. So I have a, a student, his company's called Elemental Knives, and they sell custom knives for, I think it's Fortnite gamers. And it's so specific to that audience. It's just so specific that people eat it up. And his audience is incredibly niched and incredibly targeted. And then they're just releasing new items to that specific group. That's a business. Most people, I work with a lot of Amazon sellers. And a lot of Amazon sellers are selling the widget. They're selling the candle. They're selling the fly swatter whatever the random thing is, they're obsessed with the idea of how do I sell more of these? How do I sell more and more and more and more? That's not how you build a business. You build a business by getting the one person to take multiple actions over and over and over again. You and I both know that once you get somebody to say yes once, it's easier for them to say yes again and again and again. It's the first yes that is the hard one. And The first yes in building brands is getting them to pay attention to you or to open the email or to follow you on social media or to watch the video. And then it is to subscribe and to get engaged and to share. And later it's to buy. And then it's to buy again and again and again. And that's how brands are built. That's how scalable, sellable brands are built. So your job becomes, okay, how do we go get more people that we can put through the rest of this process? Whereas most people are saying, I have my thing. When do I get the world to come and buy my thing? You don't get the world to come and buy your thing until you are focusing on specifically the person and how you serve them. Otherwise, you're kind of at the world's mercy rather than the opposite. I freaking love that. I think that's such a big thing. And it's so true. Like Selling to the same person over again is so much easier than finding new people. And then if you've got something that already sells to new people, they'll slowly come in. 
but having a sequence of things you can sell people really is mm-hmm. where, where most of the money is made. That's right. So, yeah, I absolutely love it. All right, Ryan. So, so we're moving on towards the end. I don't want to take too much of your time. But let's just say someone's listening to this. They don't have an audience yet. They're like, how do I get an audience? Is that something that you help with? Or do you specifically need people that have an audience to want to work? We can talk about it. But specializing in building the audience is not something that I enjoy doing. Mostly because I think most people are trying to hack attention rather than operating from a place of service. It's my opinion that you end up building an audience when you are focused on serving a specific targeted group of people. That's how we end up creating the change that we want to see. And most people are... I was just reading Mark, one of Mark Manson's book. And he tells the story about the first Beatle, the drummer before Ringo, who mm. was voted out of the band. And how later in his life, he says, I became happier than the Beatles could have ever made me. And when he was asked why, he said, because all I lost was some money and some attention. A lot of people knowing what I was up to and a lot of people paying me money. He had a different set of values than what most people perceived to, would make them happy, money and fame. What struck me about that is that most people covet and crave the attention. And so they are just doing whatever it takes to create noise. That does not create influence. Even if it creates an audience, it doesn't create influence. It doesn't create the impact that you want. There was a case study done recently with some influencer on Instagram who had a few million followers of, you know, showing pictures of her butt. She did a t-shirt line or some terrible product launch and ended up selling 22 units of her product, which is called not a good conversion rate. Yeah. And, and the reason for that is because there's no connection between people paying attention to what you look like when you're bent over and wanting to buy a t-shirt from you. There's no brands to that. There's no influence to that. And most people are prioritizing the attention over the influence. Attention is doing things to capture people's attention for a short period of time, whereas influence is getting people to take actions. And you get people to take actions by serving the person first. I think manipulation, even persuasion, is overrated. We can get short-term results through manipulation and persuasion. But we don't get long-term influence through manipulation and persuasion. We get influence by having enough social credibility that comes from operating from a place of service for long enough for the word to get out that when people interact with you, they get more than they gave. That is why we follow podcasts. It's why we follow anyone that we pay attention to. We are getting more out of it than we are contributing. And you have to develop the reputation to be able to do that by operating from that place of service. And I go on this little rabbit hole talking about this because building an audience, it looks a lot like operating from a place of service for a very long period of time until there is a mismatch of value so much so that people can't help but pay attention to you. Whereas most people think that building an audience, being attention in the short term, so that then you can manipulate people to do what you want in the short term. That is not how long-term influence is built. If we look at anyone that we follow, the Tony Robbins, whoever we admire in our space, it comes from people who have been doing the same thing from a place of service for a very long period of time, so much so that they have built a brand of followers who then are 
influenced to take an action because they've been served long enough by them. And I don't think that most people get that when they try to build an audience, which is why it's very hard to teach someone how to build an audience because they're coming at it from a selfish place of what do I get out of it rather than is there a commitment to be doing something in a place of service for long enough so that one day they have the attention and the influence they want to be able to create the change they want. I love that. What I love is this is like a lot of what we do is helping people build audiences and generate that. And I find that the people that succeed are always the ones that do pretty much everything you said. And the ones that fail are always the ones that start it and then they stop and then they start it and then they stop. And whenever I ask them why they stop, they always say, well, it wasn't really doing anything. And what they mean is it wasn't making them any money Mm -hmm. rather than doing it because they love it. Our gaming channel, we've not only been consistently creating videos every single week for years now, but we've got up to a point where now we've increased the amount of videos that we're creating just because we enjoy it so much. Mm-hmm. So, that's a good sign. When you're yeah. enjoying operating from a place of creating value, that's when you know you've got a shot. Yeah, I love that. All right. So somebody's got that. They've got their audience. Now, what do they do if they want to work with you, Ryan? Somebody's like, okay, I need Ryan's help. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm not hard to find. My website's capitalism.com. I'm um, at Ryan Daniel Moran on pretty much every social. What I usually do is I have workshops at my home where I work with people with audiences to help them craft the first products that they're going to bring to market, help them bring it to market. If we like working together, I sometimes make equity plays or investments in those types of brands because, as I said at the top, I make 80% of my wealth building these brands rather than selling hopes and dreams. <laughs> so I sometimes hold workshops at my home call them eight-figure exits. And I have a, a small group that I run called The Back Room where I help people get funding, help them grow from seven figures to eight figures and prepare for sale. I absolutely love it. Brian, all right. So if people want to find you, it's capitalism.com. Brian, thank you so much for coming to join us. Now, if you're new to the podcast and you want to learn more about how to build a smart business, then the absolute best place to start is with my Smart Blueprint ebook. Over 10,000 people have already gone through the book, and it's one of the most comprehensive resources on strategically building and growing your business that you can find anywhere for free. Just visit the smartblueprint.com forward slash ebook to grab a free copy. And I'll see you on the next episode of Smart Businesses Do This.